He's the fountain of all divine life, the almighty creator of heaven and earth who dwells in unapproachable light, the righteous judge of all spirits and of all flesh, yet gracious, tender, and rich in mercy. This is God the Father with Father Benedict Groeschel. Hello, I'm Father Benedict Groeschel of the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal from the South Bronx. And this is the tenth segment in our series on God the Father. We've looked at what we can know about God from the material world, what the philosophers were able to determine about God, that he was one true, good, and beautiful, and just, what was revealed about God, his mercy, and most of all, the humility of God revealed by our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we've spoken about the providence of God and the problem of evil. And we're going in the next three broadcasts to talk about when we meet God. We're coming, each one of us, inevitably, at the same rate of speed, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to the end of our lives. We're coming to the great meeting with God. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in this discussion because it's immensely important to everyone who's listening to me, in fact, to everyone in the world. There is not one human being on the face of the earth that will not meet God in the foreseeable future. Even the very young should look forward to the day when they shall leave this world and meet God. Our divine Savior Jesus Christ was not hesitant to speak about that. And it was a tremendous need of people because everyone wondered then and wonders now what comes after death. Even the atheist or the person who does not believe in life after death wonders. Suppose I'm wrong. What will it be like? The hope that human life would not end at death is very, very ancient. The oldest ruins on the face of the earth are the Irish tombs in the Burren in County Clare, 15 or 16,000 years old. Huge rocks, some of them weighing 100 tons, made uncut into natural rock houses for the dead, called dolmens. The oldest intact structures on the face of the earth, the pyramids, were built by the pharaohs, these gigantic buildings, in the expectation and hope that they would not perish forever, but that the pharaoh and the people with him, the whole Egyptian people, would go through the doors of death. These buildings expressed nothing more than hope, as did the burial rites of very ancient human beings who buried their dead, we know from anthropology and archaeology, with stone axes, with beads of obsidian that must have once been necklaces. Why would you give that to a corpse unless you expected that in some life the corpse was going to come back to life and use it? Plato and the Greek philosophers had a hope 
the death was not the end. But as Plato himself said, all we can do is take various ideas, various texts, and build them into a raft, and hope that that raft will take us through the rivers of death. But he says, we'll never know for sure without a revelation from God. And that revelation grew gradually with the Jews. It's true in the earlier books of the Bible, exactly what happens at death is shadowy, literally shadowy. The, the place of the dead was called Sheol, the place of shadows. But gradually it came to the understanding of the Jews that the good were rewarded and entered into a kingdom of God and the wicked were punished. The story of the seven brothers in the second book of Maccabees, a very late book of the Jews, when the brothers are being tortured to death for refusing to eat pork, the king is having them dismembered. They say directly to him, you butcher, you're going to hell, but we're going to heaven. And their mother, who is eventually tortured to death, encourages them to go on, go on, because soon we will be in God's kingdom. There's, in the book of Maccabees, which I said is a late book, there's another event. Uh, that's when the soldiers of Judas Maccabeus are found to have uh, taken some pagan amulets from the people who they had fought in battle. These people were pagans. And he found that these amulets on the persons of the soldiers after they were dead. This is in the second book of Maccabees, uh, in the 12th chapter, 39th verse and following. It says, The valiant Judas took a collection amounting to nearly 2,000 drachmas and sent it to Jerusalem to have a sacrifice for sin offered, an action altogether fine and noble, prompted by his belief in the resurrection. For had he not expected the fallen to rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. Whereas if he had in view the splendid recompense reserved for those who make a pious end, the thought was holy and devout. And hence he had this expiatory sacrifice offered for the dead, that they might be released from their sins. In fact, only partially would his prayers have been answered because Christ had not yet died. The early fathers of the church, speaking about what had happened to all the good people from Adam and Eve to the death of Christ, came to a, a, a conclusion that there was some intermediate state where the souls awaited the salvation of the world. The Old Testament saints, Moses, Elias, Esther, people like this, are all good people who had lived. But it was all rather shadowy until Christ came. Christ is absolutely explicit, both about the kingdom of God, his father's house, as he calls it, and about the opposite, the eternal loss of that salvation. And it is extremely important to remember that at the Last Supper, John 14, beginning of the chapter, Christ says, 
In my father's house there are many mansions. Otherwise I would not have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. And after I go, I will return and I will bring you where I am. To his father's house. Our Lord also describes the last judgment. And a lot of people don't like to hear this. He says in Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those at his right, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And you know they will ask him, when? When did all of this happen? And he, said, he will say to them, truly I say to you as you did it, for one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. And he welcomes them into the kingdom. But to the people on the other side, he says, you did not give me something to drink when I was thirsty. You did not give me food when I was hungry. You didn't, I say, and then he will answer them when they say, we didn't even see you. Truly, I say, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you, you will go away. You did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I would not like to argue with that. If you feel that you would like to argue with it, argue with it. But you're arguing with the Son of God. You're arguing about something that you and I or no other human being could possibly know about. And if you wonder if there is a hell, ask yourself the question, why did the Son of God come into this world for 30 years of poverty, toil, and labor? Why did he preach along the roads? Why was he arrested, tortured, and put to death? He did it so that we could be saved. And this is eminently clear in many pages of the Gospels, in St. Paul, St. John, in the whole New Testament. And I must tell you that I become extremely impatient with those who claim to be students of the Scripture who cannot see this. I, I, it's as plain as the nose on your face. You have to deny text after text after text of the scriptures in order to escape from that conclusion. Now, there's a very interesting question. And since I know that many of my hearers, many of those who listen to EWTN, are not Catholics, I'm going to speak about the other possibility, the intermediate state, neither heaven nor hell. And this is a great debate among Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, and various other people. Is there an intermediate state? Is there a purgatory? Now, in the Eastern Orthodox churches, the word purgatory is not used. That word is actually 
a noun made out of an adjective. It is the place of purgation, or as it said in Orthodox theology, the place of expiation. Some of the earliest Orthodox saints, or saints of the Eastern Church, in those days it was one great church, Catholic and Orthodox, if you will. Some of those saints are very, very clear about it. St. John Chrysostom, Archbishop of Constantinople, particularly. But, uh, let, let me give you some readings on this from the very early church. In the year 210, or about there, Tertullian, who was a Christian writer, a great hero, not a saint, wrote this about the text in Matthew 5.25.26. Kind of an important text to look at. Let, let, let's, let's look at that. Okay. Um, this is when Jesus says that you should not hold things against your brother or call your brother a fool. And he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar. Go, first be reconciled to your brother and come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put into prison, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now you can argue about that, but listen to what Tertullian says in 210. When we understand the prison that the gospel talks about as being the underworld, and the last penny as being the slight fault, being cleansed there in the wait for the resurrection, then no one will doubt that the soul makes recompense in the underworld, the fullness of the resurrection being saved for the sake of the body also. Christians in modern times, and I, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't do this, kind of play down the fact that there is a difference in eternal life after the resurrection of the body at the end of the world. Some of the saints, uh, St. Augustine for instance, in the city of God, great father of the church, responsible for the codification of the New Testament, St. Augustine says um, uh, that up until the very end of the world, the good rejoice and are blessed, rewarded. The suffering souls that are cleansing their hearts and beings from sin are suffering patiently. And the souls in hell are suffering eternal punishment. But once the resurrection occurs, there will be no more purgation. There will only be eternal life now with the body and the soul. It will be fuller because the person is totally integrated. And those who have lost their soul will suffer eternal punishment. He also writes that if a child who is not capable of obeying the commandments and has received the sacraments of our mediator dies in the years of youth, not only is it not destined to eternal punishment, it is not even afflicted by any of the purging torments after death. So Augustine makes that assumption that after death there is a purification. Now this was very generally held in the Catholic Church and in the Eastern Churches in all of Christianity because people prayed for the dead. 
What's the point in praying for the dead if they're either in heaven or hell? There's no point. You can't pray for somebody in heaven, you can't pray for somebody in hell. Why did they pray for the dead? And they prayed for the dead from Ethiopia to Scandinavia. They prayed for the dead from India to Ireland, throughout the whole Christian world. Why did they pray? And, and the answer was that it was a belief that they were being purified of the final results of sin that they voluntarily held on to, and that also that they were, in a sense, bringing to divine justice some of the things that they had done wrong. Nobody ever said that that time was earning eternal life. They would have been crazy. Everybody knows that eternal life and redemption has been won by our Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody ever said that, that he didn't win it. Nobody ever taught that the souls in purgatory earn or merit their eternal salvation. Nobody said that. At the end of the Middle Ages, there was this shameful, terrible practice of the sale of indulgences, of a kind of forgiveness of the punishments due to sin. And this, in those very dark, that dark century before the Reformation, this became very, very much the thing. And it was one of the things that Martin Luther rightly and most emphatically objected to. He wasn't the only one who objected to it. Many people objected to it. But he was particularly outstanding in his objection to it while he was still a Catholic priest. And he was right. The sale of indulgences was a shameful simony. It was a disgrace. But that's not why Luther denied purgatory. Luther denied purgatory, or the place of expiation, because Luther taught that it was decided before you were conceived if you were going to heaven or hell. And that if you had faith, that was a sign that you were one of those who was predestined to heaven. Now, there's a whole other big topic. Calvin accepted also Luther's teaching that God arbitrarily sends you to heaven or hell. But Calvin realizing that the parables call people to good behavior, to conversion, warn people that you might be lost, warn the early Christians that they might be lost, he said, it may well be that a person predestined to heaven will lose their eternal salvation. So Calvin, in a sense, took, away, uh, took a step back to the Catholic and by that time the Orthodox belief at the same time. By this time, the Catholic and Orthodox churches were sadly divided. Now, for either Calvin or Luther, there was no point in praying for the dead because the saved had been saved entirely by Christ and the lost, there was no hope for them. There was nobody else. In both of these cases, Calvin and Luther and the other theologians who went with them, followed along with them, were saying solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Jesus Christ is completely and solely the Savior. He does it, at least in Luther's definition, without our cooperation. Calvin would have required at least the response of leading a good life. Uh, but it has nothing to do with us. 
And Calvin and Luther taught that because they taught that human nature was totally depraved, that it was completely evil. Luther described a saved person in the state of grace as ein Haufen Mist mit Schnee which means a manure pile covered with snow. Now, I don't think too many modern-day Lutherans buy that particular phrase, and uh, modern-day Lutherans can argue with Luther. Uh, I, I don't think too many Calvinists stress the fact that somebody is predestined to hell, and it's a, a complicated and profound issue. I, I'm not dismissing that issue. But I am saying there's a lot of different ways to approach it and a lot of different answers. But their reason for denying prayers for the dead, the journey of the dead, and the purification of the soul, was that they did not believe that we participated directly in cooperating with our salvation. Nobody teaches that the soul saves itself. Everybody teaches that Christ is only the Savior of the world. But in the ancient Christianity, which is still alive in the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, the soul by grace is engrafted into the heart, into the life of Christ. And the good deeds that the person does, united with Christ in grace, in a Christian way and for a Christian motive, become the deeds of Christ himself. I live no longer I, but Christ lives in me. And so there is a transformation of the individual. That transformation is not so great that we suddenly become godlike, but we do struggle. St. Francis, the great saint of the Middle Ages, could say in his prayer, O oh God, shine the brightness of your light into the darkness of my soul. But nonetheless, St. Francis could believe that we live no longer we, but Christ lives in us. Well, you come up with the question in both Eastern and Western Christianity, what about the people who are pretty good Christians, but they're not as good as they could be, or they should be when they enter into the bright light of eternity? Well, that's called the purgation or the expiation or purgatory. One time, Samuel Johnson, the great Anglican writer, who man composed the great dictionary, great writer, Sam Johnson was having an argument with Boswell, his biographer, who was a Presbyterian. And Boswell says, Catholics believe in purgatory. Now listen to what Johnson said. He said, and well they may, sir, because we certainly know a lot of people who aren't ready to go to he heaven, and we hope they're not going to hell, so the Catholics must be right, there must be something else. There was not a new idea. St. Augustine, writing uh, in the City of God, writes, some suffer temporary punishments only in this life, and others after death. Still others are both now and after death, although they do so before the severe and final judgment. Moreover, not all who sustain temporal punishments after death will come to eternal punishment that will follow. For some, whatever is not remitted in this life will be remitted in the future age, that is, they will not suffer eternal punishment in this future age. He says, uh, 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 commenting on St. Paul, uh, writing in 1 Corinthians 3.15. It's an extremely important text. Um, where let, let me read that text to you. That, that, that's quite an important text, and it's 
uh, it's a text that make anybody stop and think. Um, he's talking about people doing good deeds. He says, let each man take care how he builds upon the foundation laid by God. For no other foundation can one lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if one builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which each man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a ward, a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will not will be saved, however, through fire. What does that mean? St. Augustine says, Clearly, although saved by fire, nevertheless this fire will be very serious, as much as a person could suffer in this life. And, and he goes on to say that this means that this cleansing fire exists for those who will be saved. Now, this may not be a consolation to you, but I must tell you, it is very consoling to pray for the dead. St. Augustine, at the end of his great book, The Confessions, asks people to pray for his mother. He said, Let thy mercy be exalted above thy justice. And I believe, O Lord, that you have already done what I am asking. But be not offended by my words. For in the day when death came, was so close to my mother, she was not concerned that her body should be wrapped sumptuously or embalmed, or with any mo monument or burial in her own country. But rather, she gave us no command, but only desired to be remembered at your altar, where she had served without missing so much as a day, and on which she knew that holy victim was offered by whom the handwriting is blotted out of the decree which is against us. His mother had said to them, her sons, I don't care where you bury me, but remember your mother at the altar of God. If you've never prayed for the dead on their journey, it's a beautiful thing. And if you have prayed for the dead, Remember to do it, so that they may all the more quickly be reunited with Christ. In our next segment, we're going to talk about that experience. This has been God the Father with Father Benedict Groeschel. Join us again next time here on EWTN. Global Catholic Radio.